Jesus is the most amazing person who ever lived. His teachings are revered by people all over the world, even by those of other non-Christian religions. Um, And we find his core teachings in chapters chapters 5 through 7 in the Gospel of Matthew, what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And people all over the world have turned to these words. As I said, even people from other religions turn to them and and say these are amazing teachings. Um, And they detect that in these words of Christ are something that is beyond what a usual human would offer. Maybe this is something that is a divine teaching. In this message series, we are looking over the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave in these chapters, and we're taking it lesson by lesson. And today we come to Matthew chapter 5, and it's verses 17 through 20, where Jesus explains his relationship to the Old Testament of our Bible, what is often called the law. So I want to begin in reading in verse 17 in chapter 5, where it says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So what is Jesus talking about here? What is the law of Moses and the prophets? The law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. The prophets, sometimes called the writings, were all of the other sacred scriptures, which included historical works, liturgical and prophetic writings, urging the people of Israel to be faithful to God by obeying the law of Moses. Together, the law of Moses and the prophets make up the collection of books that Christians call the Old Testament. It's about 75 or 80% of the Bible. So uh, what we read, and most people will say, I like the New Testament. I'm not as fond of the Old Testament. But somewhere around 80% of the Bible is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was the only Bible that Jesus had. The New Testament had not been written yet. And so when we think of Jesus and his disciples reading the Bible, what they were reading was the law and the prophets, or what we call the Old Testament. Some people in Jesus' day, as well as many people today, believed that Jesus was so radically different that he would throw out the Old Testament altogether and make something completely new. And people today, Christians today, who have trouble understanding the Old Testament or uh, don't want to take the time to read all of that stuff from way back a long time ago, and they just want to focus on the New Testament, a lot of people kind of hope that Jesus would throw out all of that Old Testament and just make something completely new. But Jesus definitively clears up that misconception right here in the scripture that we are reading today. He says, no, I came to accomplish their purpose, the purpose of that Old Testament scriptures. Jesus did not abolish 
or throw out the requirements of the Old Testament. He accomplished them. Now, if that is true, the question people today will always ask is, then why don't we still follow all of those crazy rules from the Old Testament? Why don't we, for instance, when the Bible says that you do not eat pork, but we, how many of y'all had some sausage or bacon for breakfast this morning? Yeah, we still eat our pork. And uh, why does it, why is it that when the Bible says in the Old Testament, there are laws that say that you should stone someone to death if they commit a certain crime. And yet we think, oh gosh, we would never do that. Why do we practice some rules, but we discard others? Part of the reason is because people have a hard time understanding how the Old Testament works. They don't understand the Old Testament law, and they don't understand how it was applied even in its day. We can put the Old Testament law into three broad categories. Now, I want you to know that these broad categories I'm giving you, these are modern ways of categorizing the Old Testament. The lines are more blurry for the ancients who followed the Old Testament rules. They thought about life and religion and law, and civil rules differently than we do today. We are more rigid in our understanding today. We, we like categories. So, for instance, we, we have a separation of church and state. We have laws that we follow as citizens, but we don't make laws about religion that citizens must follow. There's a clear line separating them for us in America today. But people in ancient Israel didn't think of terms like that. For them, there was no separation. They didn't think of things. If you had a medical problem, you had a spiritual problem. The two things went together. And the things that happened in civil society were intimately meshed together with what happened in religious society. All of these, they had, much, had a much more holistic view of life than we do today. Today, we want to categorize things. I go to work. And then I come home, and the two things don't mix unless you're a preacher and you're writing a sermon or writing a eulogy for somebody while you're sitting on your couch at home. Okay, so we look at things differently. But in general terms, I think that these categories were helpful for us today as we try to understand the ancient law and how it applies to Christians today. First of all, there were, in the Old Testament law, there were civil laws. These are laws that help to maintain order in civil society. We can understand this because we have civil laws today. We have a speed limit. When you go up and down Cleveland Highway, you're only supposed to go a certain speed. And this helps keep order and keep us safe. A hundred years ago, they didn't have speed limits up and down Cleveland Highway because they didn't have cars and things that were going up and down. It didn't make sense. And then at some point, more and more people were getting these cars that would go faster and faster and faster, and nobody knew what you were supposed to do. When you come to an intersection of two roads, who's supposed to go first and who's supposed to stop? Nobody knows. And I can't imagine how many accidents were had and how many people were injured or died because there were no civil laws dealing with how to 
properly manage traffic until people finally said, we got to do something about this. And they started coming up with all the different laws about it to make civil society possible with the invention of automobiles. Um, And we have all kinds of laws that fall into those categories. They had those kinds of laws in the Old Testament too that dealt with the kinds of life and society that they had. They didn't have cars, so they didn't have speed limits. They had other laws that don't apply to us today that would be outdated. Now, interestingly enough, America is only a few hundred years old, and yet we still have laws that are outdated. I was researching this, and did you know that we have outdated civil laws in Georgia? I, I read, and I don't know, I heard that there is a law that says that you are not allowed in Georgia to keep a donkey in a bathtub. I don't know why we still have that law. Apparently, at some point, that law was necessary because someone was doing it. But um, I don't know many people that are keeping a donkey in a bathtub today or even tempted to do it. But there's a law, I guess. I, I guess it's still on the books. Is that right, Tom? He's shaking his head, and he worked down there in the, in the legislature, so he should know. I also learned that um, there is a law in Ackworth, Georgia, where you are legally required to own a rake. So, if you ever move to Ackworth, the law says you have to have a rake in order to live there. I don't know why they had that law. I theorized that maybe they had a problem with people not cleaning up their leaves at some point in the past. And they said, you know what? We want Ackworth to be a decent, upstanding, no-leaf place. And so, if you're going to move here, you've got to have a rake. And they put that into law. In Gainesville, Georgia, they made a law at some point in time said that you must eat your fried chicken with your hands. Don't be trying to be all highfalutin and classy using a fork and knife when you eat your chicken. You just pick that piece of chicken up with your uh, hands. Um, Apparently, as a practical joke, somebody knew about this law, and a 91-year-old woman was visiting from Louisiana to celebrate her 91 years birthday, and they arrested her for using a fork and knife to eat her chicken. It was a practical joke. Um, They were just kind of putting one over on her. But that is an actual law that they put on the books in Gainesville. And there's a reason. Apparently, Gainesville has a very large chicken industry. And as a publicity stunt, they uh, made this law um, to try to say chicken was like the down-home food for everybody. You don't have to use a fork and a knife for it. You just pick it up with your hands. And I guess the legislature there got all funny and said, we're going to make it a law. You've got to eat your chicken with, the, with your hands in Gainesville. There's a reason for all these laws, even though they get lost over time. Well, Israel was a civil society that needed rules to live in an orderly, peaceful manner. And in addition, they had a purpose. They were a people, a society, a kingdom for a reason. God had chosen them for a purpose. And so Israel had rules even about the minor details of civic life, which included how they should dress, how they should eat, how they should punish criminals, and even how to treat strangers and foreigners and orphans and widows. 
God made laws and gave them laws to follow so that they would stand out amongst all the people that lived around them and people would say, this is a peculiar people. They have some strange rules. Their rules are different than all of the other nations that live around them. But why don't Christians feel obligated to abstain from eating pork and dressing like Israelites? It's because we don't live in the ancient kingdom of Israel anymore. In fact, that kingdom no longer exists. It is not on the earth anymore. Some people say, well, wait a minute. Israel still exists. I can find it on a map. You can get on a plane and you can go to Israel. Yes, that is true. But that country is not the ancient biblical kingdom of Israel. They do not have the same purpose. They do not have the same mandate from God. They are not the ancient kingdom of Israel. But there were civil laws, and there were also ceremonial laws. That's the second category. These are laws about religious rites and festivals for the people of Israel. This was how they should sacrifice a goat, how they should uh, ordain a priest, the ceremony that they should use to heal a leper. So they had all kinds of ceremonial laws that they were supposed to follow. There's also a reason that Christians are not obligated to follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. We believe, as Christians, that Jesus fulfilled everything that those laws required. In simple terms, those laws no longer apply because Jesus achieved everything that those laws foreshadowed. So, for instance, we don't have to sacrifice a lamb for the Passover feast because Jesus is the Passover lamb and his blood covers our sin. The original Passover ceremony foreshadowed what Jesus was going to do. Even the Exodus itself, where Jesus, where God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was doing for all people everywhere, delivering us from slavery to sin. And so when it comes to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, Christians are not obliged to follow them because we believe Jesus fulfilled everything about those laws. A third category of laws that you could find in the Old Testament would be what we would call moral laws. These are laws about right and wrong, good and bad behavior. So, for instance, you can look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. These are moral laws that God has given. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not worship idols. Do not have any other God before you, before before uh, the Lord, He's the only Lord, worship only Him. So these are moral laws about right behavior. There are also laws in the Old Testament about sexual immorality. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't, don't marry you know, your, uh, your close relative. So they had rules about what 
kinds of things there were abhorrent to God, and about idolatry, and about many other different moral things about how you should live. Now, these moral laws aren't just for people who lived in the kingdom of Israel. They are universal. They apply equally to all humanity regardless of where you live and when you live. So, for instance, it doesn't matter if you live in America, in Africa, in Iran, in Russia, or China. It is still wrong to murder. And everyone knows it. It doesn't matter if you're living in the first century with Jesus or the 18th century with John Wesley or the 21st century in Whitfield County. It is always wrong to steal, to bear false witness, to commit adultery, at least according to God's way of living as spelled out in Holy Scripture. So these moral laws that we find in the Old Testament that Jesus lived by, that he taught his disciples to live by, still apply to us today. And that is why we believe that there's nothing wrong with eating pork, but we still believe that sexual perversion is an abomination to God and is harmful to human society and is destructive to human beings. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18 and 19, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you are called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophet. He came to satisfy the demands of the Old Testament and to fulfill everything that it points to. The purpose of the ancient kingdom of Israel was to be a royal priesthood to bring all nations back to God. That was their real purpose. I'm not making that up. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's spelled out again and again and again. I don't have time to go through and, and pull out all of the different scriptures that refer to this. But let me just share a couple. One is from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where it spells out that God's hope is that not just the people of Israel will be reconciled to God, but that Israel will be a light to the Gentiles. That you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth, is what God said. God told the people of Israel, you will bring all nations to salvation. And then again, on Wednesday nights, we are studying the book of Jonah. What is the book of Jonah? What is it all about? God sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, who were not Israelites, they were Ninevites, and they were an evil and violent people. And God sent Jonah to go preach to them and to call them to repent. You see, God wants everyone, not just the Israelites, to be his people. And Israel was supposed to be a holy nation set apart to represent God to the whole world 
and to invite everyone everywhere to turn away from sin and let God be the Lord of their life. And yet Israel was self-absorbed and they were full of sinful pride. They thought that God loved them more than everyone else. And all they wanted to do was enjoy their status as God's chosen people without obeying the law to actually live as a people chosen by God to reach out to all the world and bring them to God. Although Israel failed in that mission because they constantly turned away from God and broke his law, Jesus fulfilled everything the law said, including the purpose the law was given. Jesus is the only person who ever lived, who never sinned, who never broke a commandment, who never violated the spiritual purpose of the law. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension is the fulfillment even of the smallest details of God's law. Everything that the law pointed to, Jesus accomplished. But then he goes on in in verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus ends with a warning that's meant to make us realize how desperately we need him to save us. Think about it. He says, unless you are more righteous than the Pharisees in the Bible, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees strive to be absolutely obedient to every single letter of the law. When the law says, don't work on the Sabbath day, they wanted to know exactly what that meant. So they determined, how far can you walk? on the Sabbath day, before it's considered to be work. They studied it, and they decided you can walk up to three-quarters of a mile on the Sabbath day. Anything beyond that is considered work. They wanted to know that, and we can laugh about it, but they wanted to follow the law. They wanted to do the right thing, and they believed that by doing it that way, they would fulfill their obligation. And so they had explanations and rules about that for all 613 of the Old Testament laws. And they had them all memorized so that they could be absolutely perfect and fulfill the law completely. And they were considered to be the most holy, perfect people in Israel. And Jesus says to you and to me, Unless you're better than them, there ain't no way you're going to see heaven. That's pretty, that's pretty scary when you think about it. And here's the point. Jesus is pointing out that it is absolutely impossible. You cannot be holy enough, righteous enough, perfect enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't do it. You can't do it, but Jesus can. 
And Jesus did. Jesus fulfills the law. And he paid the penalty for your failure to keep the law. And Jesus offers us grace and mercy. He says, I know you can't do it. I know you haven't done it. And I know you won't be able to do it no matter how hard you try. So I came and did it for you. And I came to say, God is giving you grace and mercy despite your failure. God loves you anyway. And God wants to be with you anyway. Therefore, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our failure. And to offer God's grace. All he asks of us is that we repent of our sin and we believe in him. To repent means to turn away from your sin. It means to turn away from your rejection of God. It means to turn away from an attitude that we have where we say we're going to live the way we want to live despite what God wants. To repent means to stop living however you want to live and start living the way God wants you to live. And believing in Jesus means trusting Him. It's not just believing it in your head. You say, yes, I believe that about Jesus. No, it means trusting Jesus and following Him. Living the way He teaches you to live. Believing in Jesus, the best illustration I can think of, it's like when a little kid climbs up. How many of you like to climb up trees when you were a kid? I sure did. But when you're a little kid, it's it's sometimes easier going up than coming down. You think of a kid that climbs up in a tree and gets stuck. He might not even be that high. Maybe just a little bit out of reach of his dad. But to the kid up in the tree, it seems like it's so high. But the dad is standing at the bottom, and he he can't quite reach his son. But he knows if his son will just let go, he can catch him. He's not going to drop him. His son is perfectly safe. The father knows this. The father is an adult. He's mature. He knows he can catch his son. And he says to his son up in the tree, Son, just let go and I will catch you. Do you believe me? Now, the little son up in the tree can say, I believe you can catch me. I know you're big and you're strong. You've got good hands and good arms. I believe in my head that you can catch me. But guess what? The son does not really believe it until he lets go and drops from the tree into his father's arms. And this is what it means to believe Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says He has come and paid the penalty for our sin. And all we've got to do is repent and believe in Him. It means we've got to let go and let Him catch us. And that's hard to do when you're stuck up in the tree of sin. But that's what it is.
to be a Christian. Today we have the privilege of celebrating the sacrament of Holy Communion. It reminds us of our Savior and our Lord who came and laid down His life on the cross for our sins. It shows us what He did to pay for our sin, to make it possible for us to have eternal life, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, not because of our righteousness, but because of His. And so on the night that He was betrayed, He had a special meal. It was the Passover meal, the most sacred ceremony from the ancient law that the Israelites practiced. The Passover meal that reminded them how they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and brought to freedom in the promised land. Every year the Israelites practiced that. They they practiced that ceremony that the law told them to do. And Jesus did something incredible. He took this tradition, this thing that was embedded in the law, and he changed it. He changed the words of the ceremony. No one has the right to change the law that God gave. To change the words of that ceremony. Nobody has the right to change those words. Except who? God. And so Jesus said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat. And then he took the cup. He asked the Lord to bless it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and drink from this, all of you. This is my blood which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And after they shared the meal, they went out to the garden and soldiers came and they arrested our Lord. He willingly went with them. They allowed them to interrogate Him and accuse Him and spit curses at Him and torture Him and nail Him to the cross because He was taking our punishment on Himself. And he said, as often as you gather together, share this meal and remember what I have done and know that I am with you even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this bread and this wine that remind us of Christ Jesus, our Lord, of his sacrifice that paid the price of our sin. And that makes it possible for us to be completely and totally reconciled to you. That washes our sins away. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you for his resurrection on the third day. That reminds us that we too will rise to new life. If we put our faith in him. We thank you for his ascension to heaven. Which tells us that we will ascend to the kingdom of heaven. And be with you forever if we put our faith in him. And so, strengthen us with His presence as we gather and share this meal today. And we ask, O Lord, that once again You would pour out Your Holy Spirit 
on this bread and this wine and on us gathered here. That the bread might be the body of Christ for us spiritually and the blood and the wine might be his blood for us spiritually reminding us of who he is and who we are. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, the faithful who believe in Christ, that we might be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you.